the show my name is matt and always on the other side of texas is my brother ken say hello ken greetings there you go salutes brilliant well we are here to talk about the very first episode of star trek ever filmed with a whole bunch of people that we don't know nearly as well as we do that original crew (laughs) so i don't know about you but if you are ready i am definitely ready to get this show underway Let's start with a little uh, behind-the-scenes info, huh? Of course, it all started with Gene Roddenberry back in the day with his original pitch of Wagon Train to the Stars. What do you think? You like that idea? You hate that idea? How does that hit you? Well, of course, you know, one of the big genres uh, from the mid-50s into the mid-60s is the Western. It was popular. The closing of our own frontier was really within living memory. I think the government officially declared the frontier closed around 1890. And the idea of cowboys and Indians and the frontier was still, you know, we had that iconic image of the 50s young kid dressed as a cowboy sitting in front of the TV. And of course he'd now- A big cowboy, I might add. He'd now be, you know, 10 years older in 1965, ready for something more engaging. But, you know, the new needs to have elements of the familiar. So, you know, having something that's both like a Western in terms of the problems they'll have and the characterizations and the actors' resumes to how they're going to portray their characters, very familiar. But at the same time, there's something new about it. It's going to be in space. Space is cool. We're we're post-Sputnik. Kennedy has announced we're going to the moon. They're building these rockets. We're in the middle of the Gemini phase of development, so rocket space, that's all cool. Totally right. That is totally cool. And then the idea of taking the Western, taking the idea of gun smoke, putting it in space, like wagon train, traveling from place to place, and then also having, you know, Gene pitch this idea, a la Gunsmoke, where you can go and explore every neighbor, every store, that you could do the same thing on the ship. You know, the idea being that you could look around every nook and cranny and there'd be a new story there. There'd be a new guest star to launch the next story. Walking into the engineering room could start the next story. So that way it's constantly changing and evolving. Which is an interesting idea that I feel like he got to use later in The Next Generation with, you know, Keiko down in the Arboretum and Guinan and Ten Ford, you know. I also think that that's kind of one of the ideas behind DS9. Oh yeah, sure, definitely. Anyway, he goes on to say, you know, that drama is the key element here. It's not just sci-fi. He wants the universe to be fully formed so that we don't waste our time explaining how everything works in every episode, you know. He uses the example of Dragnet. Jack Webb doesn't have to explain what his gun does. He just uses it. 
I kind of like that idea too. You know, it's not uh, it's not Bond gadgets. We don't have a moment at the beginning when you know Scotty comes up and goes, "Oh hey, I got the new thing working. You're gonna love these." <laughs> this is Q Branch moment, Scotty. You know the one of the complaints, or at least one of the familiar tropes of Star Trek, is the techno babble, and you know as right. you as you mentioned that that's the way it works. They talk about it as if we already know what a quantum interfluxer is. Well, of course they use a quantum interfluxer here. Who wouldn't? Everybody uses that thing. You want to give a little bit? I know you know already some of the, the, the history of uh, Desilu and uh, well, how that all came about, if you want to talk a bit about that, sir. So Desi Arnaz you know, had a real vision for television and what it could be. And you know, his teaming up with his wife, Lucille Ball, who is a great comedic talent to make television. A lot of the elements that we associate with this early television is Desi's idea, the three cameras. He built the Desilu Studios. He built a, he built like a whole new system of uh, basically filming them and like catching them on film and then showing them later. Yeah, three cameras film. Uh, yeah. yeah. Go back, edit it later. And one of the things that Lucy liked is the idea of having like a real studio that would have a variety of offerings, a little comedy here, a little drama there, a little family-friendly story here. And she was attracted to the idea of Star Trek because it was cerebral science fiction. She's like, I don't have that. That's cool. Plus, she liked Roddenberry. She liked his idea. Obviously, she was onto something. We're still talking about Star Trek 50 years later. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because at that point, by the point that Star Trek showed up, Desi, Lewis, or Desi himself had already given up control of the studio. And he was gone, and she was kind of just stuck running the whole thing by herself. So she really loved this idea of Star Trek. Plus, I think that a lot of uh, that everyone saw the potential for where the storylines could go. You know, like Roddenberry, although himself had done a poor job of pitching the show, you know, had at least put the ideas in their heads of where and how and what we could do with every episode. So they were really able to get then some really great talent uh, behind the scenes. Particularly in the director's chair, they got Robert Butler, who'd already had a great television career, uh, would go on to have an amazing career in the late 60s doing some of those iconic shows like I Spy and The Fugitive. He would uh, direct the pilot for Hill Street Blues and created a uh, one of our favorite shows from our childhood, Remington Steel. He was actually the creator of that show. I don't see any Remington Steel in this episode at all, but I think it's very well filmed and looks very nice. Which then leads us to the cinematographer, Ernest Haller. The cinematographer, who was on hiatus from Disney, had already won three Oscars during the 40s, and also did a really B, really horrible B-picture that we know now as the Creature from the Black Lagoon. But in television, you take a cinematographer who's used to shooting for Disney and whatnot. I mean, again, I think based on visuals alone, that this is a really good-looking pilot, especially for yeah. a 60s show. I mean, I think it holds up today. Yeah, it's totally watchable. Yeah, I, I, I showed it last week to my granddaughters, who, uh -huh. you know, and one of the problems that when going back and watching older forms of movies and television is that sometimes there's a barrier where it's in black and white, or they talk funny, or, you know, you don't understand the conventions of the genre. And none of that was a problem. We were able to sit down and 
and watch the original Star Trek pilot without a bunch of, why is it all like this? I don't understand. I don't like it. <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, that's cool. Uh, that's cool. They were, uh, went around and started looking to try and find somebody to be their uh, captain of the of the uh, Enterprise. Uh, some of the names that were uh, pulled out, you're going to love some of these. Peter Graves. Mike Connors. Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. That would have been very interesting. <laughs> and uh, even William Shatner at the time was uh, up for the early pilot. But uh, they eventually went with um, Jeffrey Hunter. He was a uh, up-and-coming superstar. He had already, at this point, I don't know if you knew this, but I found this interesting in my research, that he played Jesus in The Greatest Story Ever Told. Yeah. Although, you know, Swords and Sandals is another familiar kind of mid-50s to mid-60s genre from the movies. Ben-Hur, Cleopatra. Yeah. And funny that you say that, because one of the guys from uh, Cleopatra was actually the costumer on Cleopatra became the costumer on this episode. So just another coup for the crew. But back to Jeffrey Hunter. He was a movie star who had gone to TV. He was in the middle of working on a Western, but the network and viewers didn't feel like it was doing anything new. It just felt like a rehash of a lot of what we had seen already on TV as far as the Western goes. So halfway through the first season, they tried to make it a little more like Maverick. So they could try to like comedy up a bit and uh, that kind of stuff. And it didn't really work. So after one season, that show was canceled. And so next for him on the agenda for good old Jeffrey Hunter was uh, Star Trek. So here's a guy with a lot of Western experience. He's played all kinds of different Western characters, and he's going to bring that sensibility to to Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely get into Once we get into the episode, we'll talk a little bit more about stuff. But it was funny that he was, he wasn't, I don't know. I mean, not like the original series of Star Trek is like funny, you know, in any way. But it definitely has some humor, especially in, you know, some of the like later episodes, even of the first season. And I felt like this episode was really lacking in the... I mean, I would almost call it humorless. And I think that had a lot to do with Pike. I think that's true. I also noticed in the first, let's say, three or four episodes of the, of the series, including The Cage, there is a, a lot of older science fiction at work. It's what people know. And I mean by that the writers, the producers, the actors. And it doesn't take them long. And I think this is Roddenberry's influence to create that new thing that we think of as Star Trek. Uh, but we're not quite there yet, and so we're in a, a more kind of earnest science fiction uh, place right here. I think we'll even see in the next episode, where No Man Has Gone Before, that they're still not quite there, although I do feel like Shatner's a little more like, you know, when he's playing... 3D chess with Spock at the beginning. He's got a, he's got a little more of like the humor in him already, but I think that's Shatner. Shatner brings a lot of humor. Yeah. So next up is uh, Suzanne Oliver. She's the one who plays Vina in the in the show. Some of some of the other people, which you're gonna love some of these too. Uh, some of the other people they were uh, thinking of putting in that role was uh, Suzanne Plachette, Barbara Eden, and uh, of all people uh, from Twin Peaks, Piper Laurie. Again, those just would have been very interesting. But I also find it odd that some of these people never made it back to the show either. We never saw Suzanne Plachette or Piper Laurie on Star Trek. Funny story about Susan Oliver here is that the producers came to her and said like, hey, you're going to be in and out on this. It's going to be real quick. She had a trip to Hawaii she was going to go to. So she had a hard out. 
and uh, she didn't make her trip to Hawaii because they went like five days over <laughs> on their shooting schedule. So, but you know, there were a lot of hardships coming out of uh, a brand new studio because it was an old silent film studio. So banging pipes, birds up in the rafters, making noises. I mean, they didn't care about that in the days of silent film because there was no onset noises being recorded. But when you're on a 1960s TV show on a budget, causes a few problems. I thought that was a really interesting uh, thing. And just another one of the things that like their first two shoot days were like, they barely got anything shot, mostly because of, of where they were shooting. Was that, was that uh, planet side? Planet side? Yeah, as opposed to on the ship. Obviously, once oh. they, they built the sets for the ship. No, I think they built the sets for the ship first. I think it was a lot of the bridge work that they did. Also, interesting factoid about the <laughs> about the ships. The way that they shot that ship was it was all done in sections. So they could pull out one section, go in and shoot, pull out another section. That way you had a completely 360-degree bridge. Like sliding out pieces of a pie or something. And they could just pull out slots. But it was funny because the guy who designed it didn't like the two levels. He was like, I, I understand why it would be for pictures, but as far as like getting a camera in there and everything else, it was really hard to like shoot. Whereas if they would have just made it one floor, they could have moved the camera in more often than not. So it was funny that that was the thing that annoyed the guy who even created it. He even said three years later that he wished he would have not done that. But on the flip side, the guy who was directing it, Robert Butler, wanted more vertical stuff in the ship because he wanted it to give it a little more space and a little more like, but Roddenberry was against it because he was afraid of, like, the blocking. <laughs> He's like, I just want everybody to be seen. You know, he didn't want to get somebody accidentally blocked behind, you know, this big structure in the middle of the bridge. You'll notice that one of the changes that happens between television enterprise and movie enterprise is in TV enterprise, the engines look like they go back deep. They're, they're horizontal. Uh -huh. And starting with the movies, they're vertical. Yeah. You know, you see it and you, you look up and there's this glowing. And part of it's because movies can do that. They can make this bigger use of space. And then in every TV series after that, the they engines were. were this vertical thing. Well, you know, there's, I will get into it too once we get into the thing, but there's a lot of like interesting questions I have about some of the technology that existed in, uh, in this version of Trek. So Leonard Nimoy, of course, they brought on. Originally, it was going to be, famously, it was going to be painted in red makeup with the red ears to almost look like a devil. Obviously, that was one of his concerns when he came on. So they, uh, both because they didn't think it was going to work as well, and also, too, because of Leonard Nimoy, they, they, they decided to back off a little bit from the, uh, from the amount of makeup they were going to be putting on him. But he had had a lot of success up to this point. He had uh, done a couple of movies. He had done a play at, at one point, which got super good reviews, and then was made into a movie. And was even running his own acting studio at this point in Hollywood uh, before Star Trek came along. Of course, the only other one other person to talk about would be uh, Medjel Barrett as uh, number one. First of all, first use of number one, which they, of course, later adopt in The Next Generation. But uh, also... Uh, Major Barrett, a female uh, first officer, which apparently, according to some tests, did not go very well with some audiences. Yeah, you know, I think we're still, you know, in a kind of pre-feminist era in which expectations about women in authority is is a problem. I watched the episode; I find her performance completely unobjectionable. You know, it's not mm -hmm. that. Oh yeah, she was playing an unpleasant character in any way. I think she was playing the kind of standard woman in charge that we're used to seeing kind of all day long. 
in you know today's television. But it's telling that this bothered, you know, the whole audience, both men and women. Yeah, it was interesting too because I was just watching the documentary. It's the one that's on the uh, the, the DVD set where uh, where uh, Major Barrett says that uh, even women were saying, uh, "Who does who does she think she is?" You know. So weird. I mean, we're de again, as we get into the episode, we're going to see a couple of other interesting, like, moments when it comes to women on the ship. But, uh, yeah, it it's weird. Obviously, you know, Majel Barrett was, um, well, why don't you tell the, uh, the, the, the letter D. Moy Majel Barrett story? So, the pilot, of course, doesn't get picked up by CBS. Spoiler alert. And CBS has problems with two characters, Spock He's, you know, kind of a devilish-looking alien. We're not sure we like him. And Majel Barrett, this this number one character, female in charge, she's testing very poorly. And Roddenberry decides, well, I want to keep one of them. I don't want to give up both of these characters. But he decides to fight for Spock. And Majel's uh, comment later on is that he decided to marry number one and keep Spock as a character, and Leonard Nimoy was happy they didn't do it the other way around. Well, the last little, like, behind-the-scenes story I'll tell you is, uh, and this is a, kind of a famous story, too. I'm sure a lot of people out there have already heard this. But uh, when they uh, did the Orion girl makeup, right? So, Rachel Barrett offered to, like, step in and... Oh. <laughs> Hello? I got a Romulan <laughs> interrupted there. Her transmission prohibited. I was like, oh my gosh, the Romulans are taking over. <laughs> I mean, appropriate for this podcast, let's be honest. Uh, ridiculous. All right, cool. Anyway, so uh, Majel Barrett offered to step in and uh, get herself covered in the green makeup for the, uh, for the Orion test. And so then when they, they sent them off to the labs to take care of. They got sent back, and they're like, wow, this green isn't reading at all. Hey, Majel, you mind if we try it again? So they really, like, cake it on, you know what I mean? It's like huge chunks of this super dark green stuff. And they send it off again, and when the proofs come back, again, they can't even read it. And they realize that what had happened was is that the people at the photo lab thought it was like a blights or something, and so they were color correcting it to try and get her to look like halfway normal again. <laughs> Whoops! Oh, what a different time they were in then as opposed to now. Nowadays, somebody would obviously realize that this is like part of an alien or something, you know, that's on TV, whereas opposed to in the 60s when nobody was doing aliens, you know, this is a very different time. All right, let's get into this one here. Uh, episode number, I don't know, zero, 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 one. We'll see what they call it. But uh, episode one of The Cage. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So as we hit the uh, opening titles, right? Uh, music's the same. Sounds awesome. Uh, Alexander Courage doing a great job. Uh, but there was no... Uh, no, like, Pike coming in with space, the final frontier. It was just the music with the swooshing Enterprise. So then we see the uh, Enterprise. It's in space, you know, where it belongs. And we get this sort of weird, shaky camera as we move into the top little module on the Enterprise. And we can see exactly where the bridge is. But it's funny because I always thought on the, uh, on the front of the bridge where that little cockpit thing is up there, it always looked like there was a window there. But there can possibly be a window there. 
So I was like, what is that on the outside? It looks like in the inside, we see a view screen, right? But what's on the outside, that's the part I can't figure out. Also interesting as we move into the, as we move into the episode that uh, there's no captain's log. You know, he's not like, uh, Commander Pike, uh, captain's log, uh, started 50 years before the other one or whatever. <laughs> you know, we're on our, we're on our way to the Vegas system to uh, take care of the uh, hurt and the sick that we lost on Rigel 7, you know. Uh, there's none of that. So you kind of have to just like figure out what they were doing and where they were going, you know, just based on the dialogue there. But it sounds like Rigel 7 was not a good time for them. Now, so you've got these, these elements. You know, the Captain's Log is an excellent narrative element because it allows a little bit of exposition without taking you out of the story. Because it's not like, you know, someone's recalling this from a later time. And it fits in with something that audiences and the writers and everybody would have understood naturally. Because, of course, this is happening, you know, only 20 years after World War II. You know, a lot of the audience and the writers and everybody had either been in the war or they'd fought in Korea or they'd been drafted. And they were familiar with these kinds of things as uh, the captain's log or, which is, of course, is a nautical reference. Or, right. you know, war diaries in which units would keep track of everything they were doing so that, you know, it would be easy to reconstruct what worked in training, what didn't work, what was going on, so... Well, we get to one more naval shout-out as commands are yelled across the bridge, you know, like on a submarine or something. Turn on the lamp! Turn on the lamp! <laughs> Wish I had written down some of those uh, things so I could turn them out, right? <laughs> so then uh, they find themselves on a collision course with a uh, unknown thing. <laughs> Turns out they're just radio waves from a uh, old-school ship. That was purposely sent out so that they could, uh, so I, they, that they could be obviously seen. I guess. I mean, we—it's so bad. We even get a red alert on that, which is a different red alert sound, by the way. I'm sure you noticed. So that turns out to be a uh, distress call that uh, from the ship that went down 18 years ago, somewhere in the Talos group. Uh, Pike decides to skip it though, so that he can get his own sick and injured that are on the ship to Vega. So they can get them all healed and probably get a new uh, complement to cover those people who are gone. Uh, so in the meantime, then we go into the bowels of the ship, where I also noticed another different uh, set feature was the uh, the triangle hall that they had. Thought that was interesting. I think we do see the kind of architectural design in the future with this triangle building, uh, but it's emphasized less. In the future, maybe, yeah, maybe they just didn't have the the like the columns because they because they because now that I'm thinking about it, you're right they probably do have the the square off things but they had those big like columns that were really emphasizing it so maybe that's really what stuck out to me more so than anything so uh, we get down to uh, Captain's quarters uh, we see him pick up a crazy communicator which is like all like invisible you can see the wiring inside it and everything they use those for a while. Oh, did they really? Shows what I know. As I've stated, half the reason I'm doing this is just so I can rewatch the show and see all the things that I missed the first time. Um, so uh, we get the humorless captain, the captain who's got the uh, you know PTSD from uh, the Rigel Seven, everything that happened. It's a little uh, bartender scene where uh, the doctor's giving him uh, 
Give him a martini. Because sometimes you'll tell a bartender things that he won't tell his doctor. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that as a bartender myself, but we'll let that go. So this is a scene that we see again in Star Trek Beyond. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because this, this pilot, even though it was never aired, it's not, you know, never officially been part of you know, the series, and yet they go back to it, and they go back to it, and they go back to it. it. You know, and this is, of course, the idea of a renaissance or a reboot. You go back to the original source material, and you mine it for ideas. And so we see a bunch of things in this episode that become used elsewhere throughout the Star Trek universe. And one of them is, is you know, establishing the, the pathos that, that Christopher, um, what's his name? Chris Pine? Like, well, oh, Pine. Chris Pine. Yeah. Sorry. That Chris Pine's Kirk will have in Star Trek Beyond is this kind of, you know, do I belong here? Is this what I should be doing? And a lot of reviews said, this isn't Captain Kirk. He loves being in space. You know, he's the guy who fights to get the Enterprise back. Right. And, of course, when you see this scene, you know, in the cage, you're like, oh, well, that's that's where this scene came. That's where this idea of the, the burdens of command. And is this, you know, the cost. And you see it a little bit better, I think, in the cage. Where, one, we're not burdened with, wait, we already know Captain Kirk, and this isn't Captain Kirk. But two, there was a battle apparently that had gone bad. Casualties were taken, good men lost, and it's it's weighing on Pike. And when they do it again with Kirk, it's it's kind of bigger picture, more like, you know, do I belong here? Is this right? Rather than, you know, we just had a, you know, there was a mess. I feel guilty. Because, you know, one of the things that the doctor says is it's not your fault. You can't blame yourself. And, of course, there's no particular reason for McCoy to tell that to Kirk in Star Trek Beyond because there, there's no Rigel 7 that went wrong. Right. You hold yourself to a higher standard than any men should. I think that's what he said. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what Kirk does. Yeah. The other thing, of course, about um, the... J.J. Trek world is that they make a lot of use of, of Pike as a character. He's not someone who gets, you know, left to the menagerie. Lucky for him. I definitely like the way his character is used in this. I mean, he's an interesting character. He's, uh, obviously he has got a lot of burden from, you know, as you were just saying, from what happened on Rigel 7. And I think that being, especially being able to use that in this script as a character moment for him to be a lot, you know, for them to use it against him later like they do and uh, all that. I mean, it's really interesting. Oh, here they also talk about the Orion slave women, which, uh, you know, obviously also comes back later. I feel like everything that they're setting up early on also gets used up later. So. Yeah, we it's kind of cool. I like that. But uh, They mine this episode. What's that? They mine this episode ruthlessly oh, yeah. for stuff That's later on in Star Trek. I was more meaning like, you know, the foreshadowing for later in this episode. But yes, that too. So what do you think of these costumes? These like uh, the velour, uh, velvety, yellow jumpsuits, the blue coats over with the little rings on them and everything. Uh, how do you feel about these outfits so far? So, you know, you've always got this, you know, what will clothes look like in the future problem. And as we know, right. by the 70s, 
people think we're all going to be wearing, you know, like silver onesies. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, so they're, on the one hand, drawing on kind of military, you know, traditions of, you know, you want people to look smart, you want them to be able to identify ranks, but you want them to look futuristic and cool at the same time. The th the, again, to go back to the mining this episode for the future, one of the things I noticed, of course, is that when they go on away missions, they wear these blue jackets, and suddenly they look like it's an episode from Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> right? Really <laughs> taking you back. Yeah, so it's clear that, you know, from the Star Trek continuity, that blue jacket was something, of course, that was traditional. And now it's as though they'd taken those jackets off and were walking around in their shirts, whereas before... You know, uh, they were all wearing their jackets and yeah, yeah, all the time. So we get back, we find another transmission via radio waves. By the way, which I think is hilarious. Uh, via radio waves, we get another uh, transmission that there are survivors on the ship. Pike decides, well, we better head that way, see if there's anybody up there. And then there's this completely weird and awkward warp scene where <laughs> the music swells up again, and then they're just standing there on the ship, like watching. And he goes down and by the uh, navigator, looks around, like, all right. Cool, everything looks good. All right, cool. Music plays a little bit longer. And then they come and then it comes back. And you're just like, oh, it's like a weird little warp scene there. I'm glad they decided to cut that. Although you can you can imagine how useful that is early on in the series to kind of establish, you know, they're going a long distance. It's a serious technical yeah. issue. The other thing that you notice is that later on in Star Trek, in part because of the higher rates of speed that everyone will be traveling. We never really see a story again in which they get a distress message and ignore it because it's 18 years old. Yeah. And clearly, you know, one of the things that Pike is thinking is that, well, you know, radio waves traveling across time means that this message is 18 years old. We're going to go right. investigate. It's, it's like, you know, you get a traffic accident report. Or you read in the newspaper about a traffic accident down the street. You don't go out and look for it. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, because, you know, of course, nothing will remain. And that's why Pike is saying there's no reason to go after this. But later on, we've established that, you know, communications are basically subspace. They're effectively instantaneous. There are still times where communication takes some amount of time. For example, in my favorite episode, The Balance of Terror, he asks for orders. What do I do? Because there's this question of crossing the neutral zone. And he doesn't get the right. orders saying, we back you no matter what, until the end of the episode. But, you know, there's like this period of time, you're not quite sure how long it is. Is it hours? Is it days? In which it took to communicate back to Earth. So, yeah. but that's really, really fast communications. It's clear that, that Pike is thinking, that communication's 18 years old. We're not going to find anything. Also, too, I mean, he wants to, like, get his injured men back to the... back back to Vega. So then this is where the, one of those weird, like, women things happens, because he, like, turns around, bumps into the yeoman, and then he's like, I'm not used to having women on the bridge. I mean, uh, except for you, number one, uh, you're fine. You're not a woman. I mean, no, I mean, you're a woman. I just mean, I don't think of you as a woman. I mean, I mean, what's happening? It's like totally awkward. It's like 1960s awkward. It's like madman awkward, you know? It's just like, what is happening? Aren't we, isn't this the future? Aren't we clear and cool with having women anywhere on the ship that they want to be? 
I think they're trying to do two things. They're trying to, one, lampshade that they've got a woman on the bridge. Look, this is the future. You know, women are much more integrated into the kind of, you know, hard-edged command, serious roles. They're not at home taking care of the cooking and the children. On the other hand, they also want to soften it by making it, yeah. you know, by putting the, the awkwardness on Pike rather than on number one. Number one isn't the one who feels out of place. It's right. Pike who's the one who feels awkward about having um, the yeoman and the command officer. Yeah, but I wonder, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I just, and maybe I'm, you know, coming from a different time, but I just feel like that would have been, that wasn't the way to ingratiate the audience into number one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, right. wouldn't it have been better to just, you know, act as if, like, nothing's different, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think that they that would have been maybe a bridge too far. Yeah. You know, that, that, that would have been, like, so implausible. You know, we might have, it might have almost been easier for people to, to have a robot cast member at that point. You know, yeah. like, Danger Will Robinson. That, that was plausible. Yeah. Women on the bridge? I don't think so. Except for this yeoman who doesn't understand personal space. Well, you know, the the role of yeoman in, in Star Trek is frequently they're like secretaries. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But it's funny, too, like, you know, you, you know, he complains about having women on the bridge, and then, you know, we cut to Shatner, you know, three episodes later, and yeoman Rain standing right next to him in her miniskirt, like, just standing there, you know? Hey, I need some coffee. Go get me some coffee. I don't know why all my captains are like old men, but that's apparently <laughs> how I'm doing them. Give me some coffee, yeoman. <laughs> I guess it's better than little kids. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> anyway, so they decide they're going to go down to the planet. They get like, you know, six, six peeps together, except for number one, right? Because she's got to watch the ship. Then they all like... <laughs> This is really funny to me, too, is that then they all, like, get into that elevator, you know? And that elevator, which, A, doesn't look like an elevator at all. And then they all, like, are standing there slightly cramped, like, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. We take the elevator like this all the time. It's good. Don't worry about it. It's fine. But that just made me laugh. I'm glad that they at least elaborate that in the next episode where it's like, oh, yeah, that actually looks like an elevator. So uh, they land on the planet, they explore. Uh, oh, I also like the vistas, that they actually had backdrops in this one, you know what I mean? As opposed to, like, later, as we'll see, you know, it's just, like, blue or red backgrounds that are supposed to look like the horizon. I mean, that even lasted into, like, the first episode of Next Generation from time to time. We're just like, they are so standing on a set. <laughs> what is happening? We'll just put up a sheet, we'll sign some, you know, purple lights on it, and it's the sky. Yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so... Uh, but I thought those looked great. And even later when they uh, go to Rigel 7 and they have that nice, like, that nice shot of the castle with the, you know, the planet in the background and everything. I remember that from the ending credits. So, and I always wondered where that came from. Now we know. Yeah, there's also a Telosian in the end credits. Yes. Yeah, yeah and Orion. And the Orion slave girl. Yeah, so uh, again, they're just like, you know, all kinds of material becomes yeah, canon exactly. because it's in the end credits. Right, exactly. And you know, and you're watching that, you're like, whoa, I missed a whole bunch of episodes. <laughs> seen those at all oh it's one episode that they never aired no wonder <laughs> lost it was like the opening of my old podcast remember where it's like all these like scenes from stuff that i never shot just like these little like quick one-offs all fakes me dancing and stuff all right. <laughs>
So back on the planet, we got the singing plants, and then we see Spock smile, like we talked about earlier. Again, clearly not at... Although, I mean, he's, he tends to be pretty... I'll say both these things. So first of all, he tends to be pretty, like, uh, pretty steadfast, pretty, you know, non-emotional throughout most of the episode. But then I say that, and I think... He didn't really do a lot in this episode, you know? It was almost as if he was there just to be like, ooh, cool alien with pointy ears, you know? Obviously, it was one episode, and they'd expand his story much more, I guess, as seasons went along. But it was interesting how, like, nothing... He was pretty much the guy there to yell things at other people. Pull ahead! <laughs> yes, exactly. There you go. And uh, we see Boyce on the away team. I guess it's standard procedure to have a doc down there. In case uh, one of the red shirts dies. Of course, we don't have any red shirts in this episode. So who's going to live? Who's going to die? We don't even know. I mean, we don't even know who half these people are. <sighs> Sorry. Where was I? What do you think of the Telosians? What do you think of their look? I mean, especially considering it was the 60s and, you know, with the, the, the little effect budget that they had. Uh, I think that they come off really well. I like them. So, I, again, I think this is part of the early science fiction, you know, 50s to 60s science fiction-y look to these guys. One right. is, you know, there's no really good reason that they should have giant heads. You know, brain complexity is really a matter of organization, not how big your head is. You know, there's there's some connection to, you know, brain size. But they're, they're just taking the linear brain size and, you know, going, well, they're, you know, twice as smart, twice as big a brain. <laughs> Must be. Yeah. You know, so... I think that's a feature of early science fiction. And, and you know, it's a way to highlight for the audience. You know, later on, we get this trope from Star Trek about what hat does a character wear or a, a race wear. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's from the episode where they beam down to the gangster planet and everyone's wearing a hat, planet of yeah. hats. So, you know, the, the Klingon hat, you know, is to the, the, be the Russian adversary early on. Later on, they become the honorable warrior guy. Vulcans are stoic, serious, science-minded. And so one of the ways to establish their hat is to give them a giant brain. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're telepathic. Giant brain. Later mm -hmm. on, of course, we'll get telepathic characters that will look like Spock himself. Right. Or, uh, you know, Deanna Troy. No need to create any kind of giant brains weird hats. weird hats uh so once they get to the uh once they get to the planet they do find the group of survivors a bunch of old raggedy men and then one uh one hot girl who <laughs> totally like creepy face right away comes on to pike and is like whoa you're like the perfect specimen <laughs> not the best i mean it's creepy it's like it's really weird it's not the best pickup line that's for sure you know, there's that scene in Master and Commander. And I think Star Trek shares a lot of features with Captain Cook, sailing the Pacific, discovering these islands. You know, it'd be like Island of the Week on uh, Captain Cook. Or um, Horatio Hornblower. So this idea that there's this frigate that goes out on a mission by itself and has to fend for itself. Right. So anyway, in Master and Commander, they're in Brazil getting the mast getting wood for the mast, because they got to fix their mast. And, you know, there's this woman down there uh, with the merchants and so forth, and he looks at her, and, you know, he's... Because, of course, these guys are on the boats for, you know, millions of years. Yeah. And I, I think it's that kind of a scene. And, again, these guys who had been in the Navy, 
who, you know, this boat crammed with all these men, you get off to just take on water, and you see women on the island, and it's like, oh, a woman. I think he's having that experience. Well, plus, you know, once we find out her backstory, it makes a lot more sense as well. But just at that moment, you're just like, well, that's a little bit scary. Okay, great. All right, so uh, she leads him. Uh, she leads him up the mountain there into the place and uh, to get captured by the Tolosans, where both her and the rest of the, uh, the old raggedy men, they all disappear. The crew then attempts to, like, blast down the doors with their phasers, these big clunky phasers that they have. I like the other ones, the sleek and bulkier ones that we'll see coming up later, but uh, I do. But uh, those, the, the big ones are funny. I guess it has a purpose later, you know, the why they're so big and bulky to make it. But still, I like the other ones better. I like the ones we're about to get as opposed to the ones that they have. So Pike awakens up in the cage, looks around, sees, sees like that ape-like creature, you know, kind of like the Magatu, but without the horn on it. He sees a giant bird in the corner. Uh, and then he finally meets the, uh, the the Telosians. An interesting point here, which I noticed uh, on my rewatch, was uh, he calls it the Space Vehicle Enterprise. <laughs> Doesn't call it the spaceship or, you know, anything else really cool. No, he calls it the Space, space Vehicle, vehicle. <laughs> Enterprise. My space conveyance. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> my, my space conveyance, exactly. Uh, let's see. So, uh, they're telepathic. They don't really talk to him at this point. They kind of, like, explain the psychology psychology behind his every move to, like, the rest of the group. And then they, uh, say, ooh, then they can begin the experiment. What I thought was interesting about the cut of this that we watched is it never felt like there was a commercial break. You know, it's like you watch some of the other episodes, like, you know, on Netflix or on even on the DVD, and you're like, oh, there's a commercial break. You can definitely feel it. But this one was edited in such a way that it just felt like a movie. Yeah. That would have definitely been a commercial break. That's what I was going to say. We can begin the experiment. Dun, dun, dun. All right, let's see. So we go back up to the bridge. They're all sitting around that conference room that we're all very familiar with. You know, Spock realizes that uh, they're giving us illusions. And um, unfortunately, these illusions could lead to anything. I mean, they could be, you know. So... Uh, what was really cool, though, is I thought that Dr. Boyce, like, an instantly understood these guys. You know, he was like, they can make an illusion of anything. They can, you know, make us think one thing. They can make us do another, blah, blah, blah. So I thought Boyce really had a good uh, handle on what these creatures were capable of. One, there are two things that I think are interesting about this scene. One is they establish the conference room as a way mm -hmm. of... And, and so when you look at how... The, like the organization theory of different science fiction environments. You know, uh, it was a few years ago, I think it was Forbes, did a series of articles, and they, they contrasted Star Trek and Star Wars. And, you know, Star Trek had really good management style because you had this conference room and, and the command officer would listen to his subordinates and there would be feedback and, and give and take and subordinates could disagree and ideas could be aired and the best idea selected as opposed to if i don't like your idea i'm going to choke you <laughs> <laughs> that is good that is good it's healthy yeah so we do see a lot of and i think this again goes back to the war you had a successful military operation you know world war ii in which you can mine that for all kinds of ideas about how would things work on a starship 
How would the commander yeah. interact with his subordinates? He's not telling them what to do. He's listening to his various departments give him good advice. Well, it's also too, I think, here that that, that you kind of get your first glimmer of the triangle. You know what I mean? You have the the one the one navigator kid who's like, we need to go down there and shoot him. This is the you know we got to save our guy. You know. And then you got Spock who's like, hey, like these people are so strong, they can just swat us out of the air. Like we don't know what we're getting into. And then they all turn and look to number one. <laughs> you know, it's like, make the decision. We've given you all of our analysis. Yeah. You decide. Burden of command. Yes, exactly. So she decides she's going to go shoot at them. That, that, that's her decision. So it's almost like they like, well, let's detach one of the main phaser banks and we'll go ahead and take that down. And uh... this is happening, you know, in the context, in the same period of time in which, you know, we're going to have the Vietnam War. You see the way that she feels like, you know, she's got to make a strong decision. She's got to, you know, go get the captain. You can't abandon crew members. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the best and brightest Kennedy advisors who, without Kennedy, felt like they had to carry on his policies and double down on Vietnam rather than, say, you know, whereas theoretically Kennedy or even better Eisenhower, the man who would you know, defeated the Nazis, could have said, no, we don't need to fight for this. We can move on. Thanks. Goodbye. Um, she felt like she couldn't say, you know, well, we're going back to drop off our guys on Vega. You know, someone else is going to have to deal with this Cats and Pike problem. <laughs> so next, Pike is sent into our... Uh... Pike is sent to an illusion in, into an illusion where he goes to Rigel Seven. That's where they like you know make that happen. He has to fight uh, off the warrior like, and it was just earlier like he was explaining to the doc, you know, like oh remember this, and then I went into the castle and I had to fight the big guy, you know, blah blah blah. But this time he also has to save the girl, right? Pike tries not to fight because he's noble. He knows that this is like he knows that this isn't real, so it's like the the stakes aren't really that high. But that leads to the question then: Can you die in the? Can you die in an illusion? Or would the Telosians come in and save you? I don't know the answer, but that would be interesting to find out. Or would you wake up and it was all fake? You know, like when he yeah, was right, exactly. He thought he was on fire at one point when he wouldn't eat the food, but he, he didn't come out of it burned. Also, too, it was funny. It was kind of obvious how wooden some of those weapons were that they picked up. I'm not sure any of them were metal, but I know that's just saving on budget in the 60s and stuff. But it was funny to me. So anyway, Pike ends up being forced to fight, and he kills the warrior again and saves Vina at the same time. The illusion ends. And then uh, Pike tries to figure out more about uh, Vina, actually, at this point. He's kind of, like, grilling her, trying to find out. And her her answers are, like, vague as all heck, you know? She's not giving any answers about that she's even real, you know? She offers Pike, hey, I can be whatever you like, blah, blah, blah. And then Pike is, like... He's too set on trying to figure out what it's all about. And when he's like, look, I'm done talking to you. I know you're just an illusion. She doesn't even come back to be like, no, I'm real. You know what I mean? She's like, it's kind of a wimpy character, I thought, at that point. Yeah, of course, she's in a very vulnerable position because as we find out at the end, she's actually yeah. this poorly medically assisted accident victim. Yeah. In a disfigured. And she really, really wants him to stay. And so what she's doing as this person who you know, uh, doesn't necessarily have a good grasp of human psychology, having, you know, been found as a child almost, or as a young adult, has to figure out, how do I persuade him to stay? What do I need to do? 
do I, I can be anything you want, no, no, I'm real. She's really working both in a very vulnerable situation because she really wants him to stay, but also, you know, she doesn't have a lifetime of manipulating men behind her to... Huh, yeah. That's an interesting point. I'd never thought of that. I mean, you know, if you look at her at the end when she's sort of pieced back together as she really is, it's kind of hard to say how old she is. She could be 16. She could be 14. Who knows? It's hard to say. But that is an interesting point. Uh, so, meanwhile, the crew comes back down. They've got their big phaser cannon or whatever that thing's supposed to be. And they uh, start shooting at the ki at the cliff, which uh, appears to have no effect. But uh, even Boyce is quick to figure out, like, oh, they could just be making us think that it didn't have any effect and it could have destroyed the whole thing, you know? Thought that was interesting. Real quick on Boyce. I kind of like his character. I mean, not that I'd trade him for Dr. McCoy or anything, but I really dig him as a, as a, as a nice, like, third person on the bridge. Well, I think one of the other things that we, we establish when we're talking to the girl and that we're seeing in this landscape is that this is the kind of post-nuclear war environment. You know, the kids are, at least, you know, not too long ago, were ducking and covering in school drills. And the, the great fear was nuclear war. You know, the Cuban Missile Crisis isn't that far away. This is what it looks like when you destroy your planet in war. You have to go underground yeah. and become telepathic. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Grow big heads. That's right. Another funny moment I noticed in this too is, is that uh, number one like wants to stop firing on the on the cliff, and she she literally yells disengage. But it's not like she yells it into her communicator. It was like it, it was a voice command or something. She's like disengage, uh, Alexa, disengage, <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, turn off the phasers. <laughs> Thanks, Alexa. <laughs> Anyway, I just thought that was a weird moment. I was like, oh my goodness. Voice actor, at least it's not a clapper. <laughs> Phasers! <laughs> All, right, All right, let's see. Let's see. You know, uh, speaking of disengage, yes. we also hear that uh, there's several times, I think it's three or four times, where um, Captain Pike says engage. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, of course, that's famously, you know, Picard's, you know, statement that he says, engage. But, uh, again, mind, mind from this pilot. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because that, like, it slipped by me because that was just before the, the awkward warp scene. So I, like, got, like, all invested in that. Like, what is happening here? I totally forgot about it. But, yes, good catch. I forgot about that. Pike finally gets uh, Venu to open up about the Telosians, and he, she talks about their war and what you just said about them being stuck underground and growing the big heads. You know, they've gotten so, like, stuck into their, into their like, imaginations and minds that they can't even repair their own equipment. That, this whole thing of, like, technology is bad, I feel like that's something that's sort of, like, or over, over, what's the word I'm looking for? Reliance on over-reliance on technology is bad, you know? I think that that's like a, a, a big Trek trope, you know? It's like Barkley in The Next Generation, you know, and his holodeck addiction. Or, you know, even now, we've got, like, people worried about, like, what VR is going to bring about for people and, you know, them getting addicted and uh, that 
the Ernie Klein book, uh, Ready Player One, you know, the Steven Spielberg movie that'll be coming out soon. It's that kind of whole thing of everyone just like stuck in this like dream state, being whatever they want to be and not like communicating with the real world anymore. Yeah, that combined with robots are going to take all of our jobs, you know, creates this anxiety that, well, the robots will do all the work and we'll just sit in VR and like live imaginary lives and... At that point, the Matrix takes over. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, speaking of early casting, I saw this uh, humorous reference on the internet, which is that, you know, as speaking as though there was like a, an original Matrix from the '70s, like Battlestar Galactica, starring you know Lyle Wagner and Garrett Morris <laughs> as Neo and Morpheus. <laughs> Take the green pill, all the blue pill. <laughs> Uh, also, this is another thing I know. So the Telosians leave, and when they leave, their elevator opens, and it's like a chime, you know? It reminded me of, like, the read-along books when you were a kid. You know, you'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear that. That's what it reminded me of. So funny. You will know to disengage from the elevator when you hear the chime. Yeah, I was lost in my imaginary fantasies. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd gotten where I was going. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So actually, that was when the Tals were showing up. So the Tals show up, uh, the Telosians show up again. And show uh, uh, and uh, torture Vina at this point because they're uh, they're mad that she's giving away all the secrets and whatnot. And this is also the first time we see one of their punishments. So Pike reacts, he gets angry, and then he gets one of the punishments. They apparently send him to this burning place, which they know from a fable from his childhood. I'm like, are they like sending him to hell? Is that what they were, we're supposed to be led to believe here? More 19 more 1960s, you know, censorship. Don't say the word hell. Well, I think it's also. Uh, you know, one of the themes that Roddenberry will always have is that religion is not real. That this is a fable. It's a fiction. Right. Because we will never see a, a human, an earth character who takes religion seriously. The only mm -hmm. characters who ever take religion seriously in Star Trek are aliens. They can be Bajorans, they can be Vulcans, they can be Klingons. Never humans. Humans have moved past religion for, for Gene Roddenberry. Interesting. I hadn't noticed that before, but you're totally right about that. Pike launches himself. And for those characters, you know, religion's oh, a hat, right? You know, for oh, the, for the yeah. Vulcans there, religion is not a belief in a spiritual being who looks after them. It's part of their philosophy of peace and serenity. And the same thing for the Klingons. Their religion is, you know, about their, their warrior honor, you know, status. It's not about you know, actual belief in the supernatural and our protectors. And whenever you see that, it's fake. It turns out to be a robot that somebody can shut off and go, ha, look, I turned your god off. I've destroyed your utopia. Sorry. Good luck. We're leaving now. <laughs> uh, so Pike launches himself at one of the Telosians and doesn't see it coming. And that's when he realizes that the Telosians can't read emotions. They can't read, especially like angry ones, like hate and rage. So uh, they send uh, they send him on another illusion to uh, uh, to pacify him. So now he's in the forest in the picnic with Vina, and uh, there's Mojave in the background, which I thought was funny. She even says like, "This used to be all desert," but it's interesting because like for some reason, much like the silver jumpsuits that we see, you know, in the '70s, it's like everybody thought we were going to be living in domes, you know, in the uh, in the later parts of the uh, our uh, our existence. I had books as a kid that postulated we'd all be living in domes.
They're so like retro future. I don't even, I mean, I remember like some of the like diagrams and stuff in that book. So like, even just like, like, um, you know, chairs and stuff that people were going to have in the future and just how like ridiculous they were. It's so like, they're so like weirdly like 60s. Mm -hmm. And we have those uh -huh. chairs, but they're totally impractical. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's something that you might have in your, your modernly appointed house, but no one would actually sit in there to like get work done or write a letter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, at best, it's where you sit while someone goes and makes tea. I'm going to sit here for a few minutes. Okay, now I'm going to get up and move around. So here they are, and they're in the they're in this, like, picnic area, and Dean is trying to serve him coffee, and then this, like, strange, like, music is playing in the background. It seems so uh, in Star Trek, but it's just, like, this, like, very, like, lilty, and, like, oh, isn't this a nice place? It's almost like the, the Telosians added it, you know, just to, like, suck Pike in even more. Look at this beautiful music. Don't you love this place? I also think we, we get the traditional uh, illusion trope, you know, of like, if you disbelieve it, you can like make it go away. Uh -huh. You know, in D&D, in you used to like be able to make a roll if you disbelieved an illusion. And I, it's almost like that's what Pike is trying to do. He keeps saying to the dungeon master, I disbelieve this. Can I make a roll? <laughs> I disbelieve this. Can I make a roll? <laughs> I know it's not real. I know it. So anyway, so from here, uh, Vina decides that maybe uh, Pike needs a little bit of the nasty going on here. So they send, uh, so she, uh, next is the Orion slave girl scene, you know? So it's interesting in the scene because Pike, I'm sure, not only feels like, this is very awkward to see <laughs> Vina in this very, like, sexual situation, but he also realizes, too, from earlier on, that this is no life for him, right? I mean, I think this is part of where he starts to decide, like, I belong in the Federation. <laughs> you know, I, like, I don't need any other part of the world. Or any other part of the universe. So now the uh, so now the crew decide they're going to beam down so they can rescue him, right? <laughs> they even decide they're going to bring along the bumbling yeoman from earlier. It's like, is this? Would we be ringing just a rant? Like yeoman Rand isn't going to go down on any of the uh, you know the away missions. <laughs> and so then they so they go to beam down, which is funny if you notice in this in this one that uh, one of the transporter buttons sounds like the photon <laughs> photon weapon button from later in the series. You know, that little like brick! The little brick sound that they use later, they also use in this transporter scene, which I thought was highly amusing. There would be a fun, uh, you know, like the sounds of Trek. You know, we have that uh, Bert from Star Wars who's made all the sounds and we'll talk about you know how this was a power cable and this was a vacuum cleaner and that was him you know making a funny noise in into a microphone and you know to, to go back and what are these sounds where did yeah. they come from what were the ideas that would be interesting i'm sure there's i mean obviously that's documented somewhere i don't know where yet but i would love to find that that would be amazing do you remember uh, um aim the chat module aim yes so, you know, my, my aim was all tricked out with uh, Star Trek sound effects for when I would get a message or send a message. You know, so when someone would send me a first contact, you know, uh, wanted to open up a dialogue box with me on aim, you know, I'd get the, the whistle frequencies open sound. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, all my sending and receiving messages would be Star Trek pings and, you know, boops and... Of course, of course. <laughs> well, 
Uh, why did why did they ever make that like a Windows like UI? That would be so amazing to have like the next gen you know thing. Especially now that we've got like iPads and stuff, you're like that would be just great. That just needs to be a UI. That would be fun. Yeah, have the cars right there on your you know iPad. So in another, I mean, I say completely out of character, but of course it's completely out of character for Spock later. <laughs> like they decide they're going to transport down, and then the women disappear, but the guys are still up there, <laughs> and Spock out of nowhere goes, "The women." <laughs> Like, it was just so yeah. weird. I was like, okay, Spock. A little over the top, don't you think, buddy? As opposed to later, it would be more like, fascinating. <laughs> yes, exactly. It seems they have taken all the women. <laughs> what logical use could they have? We get down to the planet. The yeoman and uh, number one are standing in the cage now with... Uh, with Pike and uh, Vina. Vina gets all jealous because the women have all arrived, knocking, of course, her, uh, uh, or knocking her potentially out of, you know, the number one spot as a potential mate candidate. Well, it's not just that she needs a mate. She needs a companion. She needs to not be alone in this world of Telosians. Uh, also smartly here, number one concludes that Vina may not be as young as she looks because she saw the, the name Vina on the, uh, the ship's catalog. The Telosians reappear and uh, offers the other ladies to uh, the captain, both of whom apparently have fantasized about the captain. Again, I wondered, because, you know, Roddenberry has, is, uh, was especially at this time well known, you know, for being a very, like, sexually open person, you know. I mean, he was even at this point having an affair with Majel Barrett. So uh, I'm wondering about this scene, if this is, like, just weird 60s sexism, or if this is, like, weird Gene Roddenberry, like, we all think about sex, you know. I or... think it's Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. He's a, you know, very sexually liberated 70s. I mean, the 70s is his decade. And, uh, you know, it's, it's where we, if we look at the difference, for example, uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, which is based off Trek Phase 2, and the next generation share a lot of similarities. You know, uh, Commander Decker becomes Commander Riker. They've both had previous relationships with telepaths. You know, one is Ilea, the other one's Deanna Troy. But of course, Deanna Troy, not only for television, is she boulderized or made much less of a, you know, object of sexuality. Even though she's still, you know, attractive in the show. It's not like Ilea, who has to inform the captain, you know, that her certificate of celibacy is on record with Starfleet Academy, because otherwise she's so sexually attractive the whole crew would be throwing themselves at her. This right. is, these are the kinds of characters, and the Orion Slave Girl. These are the kinds of characters that Roddenberry comes up with. He's, he's very much of his era in the sense that Freudianism was still, you know, a dominant form of, uh, you know, psychological analysis. And of course, Freud's all about sex drive is the major drive of human personality. So, uh, Pike gets another dose of the punishment. And it's funny because Bean is in the corner looking on like, it's never going to learn. It's never going to learn. It's just going to keep getting punished. What is going to happen? You know, she's so like freaked out. So then in an interesting, a very interesting thing, bit of circumstance here, Spock gets back to the bridge and it's kind of like, well, got to go. Bye. <laughs> Can't save anybody on the planet. We got to get the hell out of Dodge because uh, stuff's going on here. This is a role that Spock will always maintain. So the captain's in danger or... You know, there's, there's, and you'll have guys like the young, you know, lieutenant who's like, we got to go save the captain. And Spock will always be the rational 
actually the greater good lies somewhere else. We need to abandon the captain and go shoot the asteroid. Right, right. We need to abandon the captain and go do this other thing, fight the Klingons. And then the crew's like not trusting Spock because how could you be so cold as yeah. to leave your friend, the captain, right. behind? Yeah. And of course, Spock's, you know, thinking, well, actually, there's this bigger problem I need to solve before I can go sit. You know, once I manage this problem, rescuing the captain becomes much, much easier. But he's always going to be in that role of being, offering the let's leave suggestion, and then always having crew members who look at him like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? Even if we look at like six, you know, he's uh, he's always the one with the, you know, the practical mindset of like, we're going to wait, we'll eventually get there, I have a plan, blah, blah, blah. And everyone else is like, but we got to save the captain, you know, or whatever. But fortunately by six, they kind of trust him in a way that they don't trust him in like seasons one and two. Oh yeah, definitely true. You know, you know uh, we're going to skip ahead, but there's this, you know, the great episode where they're trapped on the planet and it's Kirk or it says Spock and, and Dr. McCoy. And you kind of get a bonding between them, which, you know, is uncommon because they're working together. It's, it's like that scene from Star Trek Beyond where they're set apart and they have to cooperate and they're both bickering in their Spock McCoy way, but working together productively. That's the other thing that we always see about Star Trek Command and that conference room and the, the teamwork. It's one of the themes of Star Trek over and over again is that it takes a team. Everybody mm -hmm. has their special gift, their talent, what they bring to the table, whether it's their disposition, their personality, their uh, you know species characteristics. And it's different and it's not enough. You know, Spock needs the captain, needs McCoy, needs Sulu, needs everybody. And Kirk will make this explicit from time to time in the series that it's not Kirk, it's the crew, everybody. He's just the captain, and that he really can't do what he does without his crew. Right. So, oh, this is another funny thing. So when T Spock attempts to leave, he also says uh, he tries to leave by firing the rockets. I thought I was like, no, that doesn't sound like technology I know about in uh, Star Trek, but okay, let's fire those rockets, get them out of there. You know, and I, I can imagine the writers, you know, re-watching the, the episode a couple of times as they think about how to do stuff and, and having the exact same comment, like, wait, we're still using rockets? You know, shouldn't we, like, make up some kind of new... And then, like, going through some encyclopedia going, uh, what if we use, uh, you know... Uh, this kind of propulsion system. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's do impulse engines. Yeah, let's have ionic propulsion instead of uh, rockets, chemical propulsion. So back in their little prison cell, everyone else is passed out, but Pike is there and he's trying to fight sleep, you know, thinking rage still in his head to try and block his thoughts from the Telosians. So one of the Telosians sneaks in and tries to steal their phaser. Pike just jumps up and he, he grabs the guy from behind and just like throws him to the ground. And that little Telosian guy looked like so small and feeble. I thought he was going to break him. Uh, so um, Pike now feels like he has figured it all out, right? He, he says, I believe that I have shot a hole in this cave wall. The, hole, the wall of this cage. And I am willing to risk your life on this fact by putting a gun to his head. So then 
the hole in the wall is revealed. The group sneak out and they head back up to the surface. Once they arrive on the surface, we see that uh, it was all an illusion. They had shot through like most of the, it was like gone, like part of that mountain was like all gone. And then uh, the door, like the elevator, elevator doors weren't even there. Like the, it was like an open-ended elevator, it looked bad. So apparently the phaser cannon that the crew was using actually worked. Once we get to the surface, of course, everything is starting to be revealed. We find out that the Delosians were keeping them captive there because they basically needed new entertainment. Uh, they also say that they were helping, needed help rebuilding their society. Uh, I don't know if they mean actual slave labor, brick by brick, or if they mean the imagination to do so. But instead, what the clever humans decide to do is to take number one's big chunky phaser and try to overload it. And so she say, he says, hey, we're going to blow ourselves up. You guys can do whatever you want, but we're going to hang around and blow ourselves up and kill us if you're going to make us be there. Otherwise, we want our ship back. And uh, the Telosians are like, okay, so you don't like being held captive. I get it. Another Star Trek theme. What's that? Uh, you, you can't hold humans captive. They will destroy themselves. They will, you know, they're like gazelles. Right. That was my next note. By the way, that was my next note. This is another theme of Star Trek over and over again. Right. So, you know, uh, Jared Diamond, when talking about domestication of species in uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, you know, says, you know, there's certain species we, humans never domesticated. And it's not because humans didn't try. It's because certain animals are not domesticable. They, mm -hmm. and so gazelles, for example, will basically, you know, batter themselves against their fencing, trying to escape. They jump high, they jump far, and they'll basically kill themselves trying to escape. And so it's, it's like humans are that. We're going we're gonna to kill ourselves, banging ourselves against the bars, trying over and over again. You're either going to have to punish us so much that we're useless to you, or we're going to kill ourselves trying to get out. Even when they say that our captivity is benevolent. Yep. Interesting, but it's funny because you know they're like looking through history, you know, uh, you know, it's it, it it seems like they're going through Earth's history right there in their in their minds. So I guess I'm trying to figure out, you know, what they're referencing. Is that a reference to something specific? You, for where when in history was captivity considered benevolent? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, like one of the obvious examples is the American Revolution, where the rhetoric of the Americans was that Parliament and George III were enslaving the American people with their taxation without representation. They were going to send magistrates and they were going to, you know, uh, force this diverse, you know, multi-Protestant group of people into a very high church Anglicanism that was way too crypto-Catholic for their tastes. And, you know, so what they're really rebelling against is that other ancient democracy that America today regards as, you know, our stalwart friend. But then right. we were afraid, you're enslaving us. And so, yeah, in that sense, even a benevolent slavery was intolerable, at least to the Americans. And in a lot of ways, you know, Star Trek is really about Americans, not about humans. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you take more recent 20, late 20th century, early 21st century, you know, political situations, we tend to get ticked off about, you know, oh, you want to, you know, give us free health care? No, we don't want that. We, we resist. We fight. It's benevolent, but we want agency. 
we want autonomy. We want to be in charge of our own destiny. And there's lots and lots of cases, great society, you know, to, you know, recently in which Americans resist any kind of, uh, you know, benevolent uh, paternalism. And this is, I think, is what Pike's resistance, number one's resistance, mm -hmm. later on, you know, Kirk will lead this kind of resistance, represents this American trait of refusing a benevolent paternalism. We demand agency. Yeah, that's, that's a great, great point. point. I also think this agency is part of the explanation for why we're not living in a virtual reality society, you know, with robots or replicators doing all our work for us. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the argument, and of course, Picard will give the exact same kind of argument that Kirk will give, that we are a self-actualizing species. And that what we want to do, and this, of course, is very 60s and 70s, what we want to do is make ourselves a better version of ourselves. And so we will always pursue challenges that will improve us. Mm -hmm. And you can really only do that if you embrace agency. If you accept the benevolent paternal, paternalistic scenario, you're not going to be self-actualizing. You're going to be complacent and cease improving. So the Yeoman and number one are returned to the ship. And uh, Pike is left there to decide if he's going to stay with Bina or not. And then we begin to see Bina as she really is, like completely deformed. Because, and this is icky, because they couldn't put her back together again correctly. Because they had never seen a, a human. What's even funnier about that to me is I'm like, well, they basically look like the Telosians without the big head, so they couldn't have even at least tried. I don't know. Well, and you know. They didn't even make her symmetrical. <laughs> right, I know, exactly. She's got like the, yeah, exactly, the hump, and she's like, yeah. I know, it's really weird. But anyway. It's almost like a better example would have been that their medical technology had declined because, you know, it's like, well, we didn't have doctors. You know, yeah. we... we it was a bunch of poets reading old medical manuals trying to figure out what to do with you. And they frankly weren't very good. This is why we need you to help us rebuild a proper civilization because all we can do is imagine beautiful things. That would have been interesting. We should have done that. Anyway, so Pike decides he's going to leave anyway to everybody's sadness. And apparently now the Telosians are going to die, which is sad for them as well. And so they give her her own Pike <laughs> to like do whatever she wants with, I guess. So there she goes. She and Pike go live... Pike number two, go and live happily after after. Pike uh, returns to the ship, and then uh, that's it. Now, two interesting things happen here, uh, one of which is an old reference I missed earlier, which was is that uh, we see that the reports that the yeoman hands him are paper. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, they didn't even have, like, the, I don't even know what the other things were. It that, was kind like, of like a clipboard, but you felt there was some, you know, like it wasn't paper on it, but. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It had like a screen that was sort of meshy or something yeah. in the later ones. But this one's like just pure paper. You're just like, oh, okay. All this technology and we're still doing everything by paper. Crazy. Yeah, at least um, later on those clipboards felt like a proto-tablet. Yes, exactly, exactly. The second thing I thought is that this comedy that happens, <laughs> comedy, I say, that happens here at the end doesn't really quite work as well, you know? I think it's almost as if like Shatner would have had like a smirk throughout the whole thing, you know what I mean? And the music would have been a little bit different at the end, you know, would have like been a little bloop, 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 you know, or something that would really help you sell the comedy at the end. No, no, it didn't really work for me in this one either. And I guess it's just because it's so out of the blue. Like, well, there wasn't a whole lot of like comedy before that. So now, now they're hitting us with it, you know? 
I'm trying to end the episode on a light note. Oh, well, there we go. We hit the end of it. Well, overall, uh, what other impressions do you have of this episode that are worth mentioning? Well, you know, I'm really struck by how it's it's an it, it's more familiar with this kind of 50s to 60s, um, you know, science fiction. In you know, you've got the concern with the post-apocalyptic world, right? right. You know, in this case, they blew, blew themselves up. They blew themselves up. It's horrible. You know, in this case, it's not nuclear testing created giant ants, but it's of that of that concern. And uh, we're going to get, it, you know, it, it will never disappear from Star Trek, but it also becomes much less central as the audience is not regularly ducking and covering in school. Mm -hmm. True. Well, I, I, I mean, I think I said this before, but I, I, I'm amazed how well it's, it hands up or it holds up. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a good looking uh, pilot. I think everything looks great. The visuals are amazing. I think the story is great. You know, it's a good thinker. It's, I mean, and it hits on all like the Trek notes, as we've already been saying, some of the tropes that they will definitely, you know, continue with down the line. And, and even Pike isn't, I mean, you know, he's not horrible in this episode. He's just not as good natured or as fun as what Kirk kind of ends up being. But you still totally care about his arc in this episode. So, yeah, I mean, I totally think this episode works for me. It is really good. And you can see how it's really not going to take Roddenberry that long before we are in full-blown, oh, yes, this completely is Star Trek. These old science fiction elements, you know, are, are gone within just a few episodes, and it feels like this is Star Trek. You know, I, I like watching pilots. I have, uh, you know, the first six episodes of the Ray Charlotte Moore show. I have the first, you know, four episodes of the Andy Griffith show and you watch these early episodes and you get a sense of how different this was you know in Mary Tyler Moore there's a lot of talk about her past and her you know engagement to you know this doctor and you know there's a few episodes in which they're establishing her relationships with Phyllis and Rhoda and at some point you know they're past all that and we never hear from it again Mm -hmm. And now it's just new situations with these characters who already know each other. And uh, it's a different show. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I have uh, season one of Moonlighting, season one of Burn Notice, season one of The Greatest American Hero, season one of Remington Steel, all for the same reasons. You know, it's like, how different were they? Where was this started from? Where do we, you know, and where does this end up? Where did, When does it really start to gel? That's always like the fun, like, investigatory part of, you know, watching those season ones. Yeah. How long until they get there? And watching, you know, it's like you can see the creative process at work. It's like you can see in that first episode where they say rockets and you're like, oh, they're not going to do that again. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. As soon as the, the creative team watches this episode as an audience, they'll be like, rockets? What were we thinking? We need to invent exactly. some kind of impulse drive. Yeah, I dig it too. All right. Uh, anything else? Last yeah. chance. I think uh, reboot Blue Jackets engaged. Number one, we hit them all. Then that's perfect. I love it. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for tuning in and listening to the big big show. Uh, I know we went a little long here. I think we're about an hour and twenty by the end of this. But hey, we had a lot of history we had to cover going into this, and I'm sure you love all the extra awesomeness when it comes to Trek, right? Of course you do. And on that note, say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. 
Perfect. And we'll see you again next week for another brand new episode of The Brothers Trackabouts! Thank you for listening again. I appreciate it. Do me a favor. Go to our YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, enjoy, comment, play around, enjoy the videos, see what we look like, if nothing else. Also, if you could uh, go to iTunes, leave a nice little comment about us. That would also be great. The more comments, the better. Make it good. We don't care what it says. Lastly, if you hang around this long, then we definitely need you to continue listening, liking, and subscribing everything that we do. We respect you, we love you, and enjoy you. Uh, definitely, episode four is something you're going to be on the horizon looking for. It was one of my early favorites, but I cannot tell you some of the great stuff that we got coming up, especially once Star Trek Discovery starts. So, thanks again for listening, and have a great one!